This podcast is created and produced by Innovator. If you're looking to cut back or eliminate hot work on your next job, or for all of your industrial services needs, visit innovator.ca. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Industrial Innovators Podcast, where today I will be talking to founder and CEO of Innovator, Don Cooper, about his first book, The Turnaround Optimizer Process. If you're anyone in the industrial turnaround space, then this is one that you're definitely not going to want to miss. To find out more info and to get the book for yourself, just check the links in the description. Now let's get on with the conversation. So tell me, how long have you been involved in industrial turnarounds and where has your passion for the industry come from? Uh, Well, I started um, in turnarounds in 1994. Um, well, I did, I did some work in 92 and 93 uh, in a different area of the market, uh, not in, not in uh, specialty mechanical, but uh, entered into specialty mechanical in 93 and started doing turnarounds in 94. So it's been, um, what's that, 26, 27 years, something like that? 25 years, yeah. And where exactly did your passion for the industry come from? Um, you know, when I started in, um, when I was first a technician, I was a lead technician and, and I was running, uh, technical bolting services. So, um, you know, where I started was torquing, tensioning, ultrasonic stress verification, doing all the calculations. And I really loved taking, you know, in those days, um, bolting, uh, as it, you know, technical bolting as it is now, um, was really, really new. Uh, most, uh, most tradesmen, most pipe fitters, boilermakers, uh, millwrights who are, you know, who are working with bolted connections, were using impact wrenches, were using hammer wrenches, um, and it wasn't controlled. It was, it was real brute force work. So, um, you know, what really intrigued me about it, you know, at that time in those days it is just the act of using that technology and, and understanding the technology was already an innovation. And so I entered into the, this entire industrial space starting from an innovation standpoint. So that, you know, just always introducing new ideas into the marketplace has always been a passion for me. And that's, that's really what started my entire journey is, and you know why we have the company we have today is is just a a constant um, uh, a passion, somewhat intrigue, uh, interest in in what's new that brings new value, and that's kind of how it all started. So, with that being said, in terms of introducing new innovation, I imagine in an industry that's historically been very uh, not to say anything bad about it, but very set in their ways, I guess. Um, what sort of challenges have come up and how have you uh, been able to get around them when it comes to introducing new technology that some of the people who have been in this industry for so long may not yet be familiar with or want to make the switch to because the way they've been doing it for years and years uh, has worked for them so far. You're trying to bring in something new. You know, I think it's been a trend from day one that, you know, and I think this is just kind of human nature, it's um, it's human nature for for us to resist change. So you know, 25 years ago, 
it was the tradespeople and the client management who'd been around for 30 years and were used to doing things a certain way. They were real resistant to change and they were real resistant to it from, you know, just a lack of understanding of, of, of what the technologies, any of the technologies we've introduced over all those years can do, what it can accomplish, not really understanding it. What's interesting is, is the younger tradespeople at any point in time over the last 25 years were always the ones who grabbed it because they weren't already set in their ways with what they were used to doing. So, you know, young journeyman pipefitters and boilermakers 26 years ago, who were maybe 25 years old then, are now 50 years old, but they learned early in their career that, you know, this makes a lot more sense to use a hydraulic bolt tensioner or a hydraulic torque wrench than brute force and, uh, and just a lot of sweat equity. So, uh, you know, that was the younger, younger uh, apprentices and younger journeymen in everything we've done for all those years have always been the ones who were most open to it. But the key, what I've found is education. Um, I've done lots and lots of training with people over the years. And if you kind of, when you introduce something originally, there's some defensiveness. Um, you know, when, when you all of a sudden are introducing, you know, a hydraulic bolt tensioner as an example, and, um, and all of a sudden you can do it 10 times faster and it's way more accurate. Uh, some people, you know, will perceive that as you're going to take away my work. Um, and so there's kind of two kinds of education that I've always found really effective in, in the near term to midterm adoption of new technology. And one is just educating what it is that the technology will do and make them real comfortable with it as number one. And the second thing is showing them that it's not about taking away their work. It's about giving them a new tool, a new tool in their toolbox so they can be more effective. They can work more safety. They can work more product productively. So when, uh, when you put off a training session with um, anyone in our industry um, and you approach it from the point of view, if it's going to add value, it's going to help them as opposed to it's going to take something away from them. I think that's always been the, most effective way to introduce new technology. It can be a bit of a slow burn because, you know, I think often um, some people don't want to be the early adopters. There's only a certain percentage of people who want to be the first to do anything. So it takes, uh, it takes a lot of perseverance with new technology, new ideas to find those first early adopters. And, and what, what eventually happens is, you know, you, you find a, a critical mass of uh, a half a dozen or a dozen early adopters in almost anything uh, that has real value. And then uh, a lot of the people who've already heard about it through some exposure very quickly get on board and they become, you know, either the early majority or the, or the silent majority. And there's a point where it hits a critical mass. And um, in, um, in, in those days, it was actually on the pipeline side of the industry that were early adopters on technical bolting before, um, before refineries and, and process facilities. 
but fast forward five years to the late 1990s in 1998, 1999, and all of a sudden the entire industry um, sort of almost um, uh, behaved like they just they just discovered the wheel, and and technical bolting was everywhere. Um, so you know, it's it's I think it's education and just being patient and persevering and um, and understanding that there's always some early adopters. And then there's a curve of sort of the silent, the, the early majority, and then the silent majority. And there's always stragglers. And you can follow this with any technology. There's sort of a bell curve that shows the different types of, um, of people from an adoption standpoint with any technology. And when you understand that, when, every time you introduce something new, um, you've got this sort of deceptive phase early in a new technology in a new process where you, you, you don't get a lot of people jumping on board right away. But the real key is you just get a few and then you prove the technology and you prove the value and then it gains its own momentum with time. And, and I think the key with any innovation, whether it's, um, whether it's technology or process, is you just got to persevere and trust that as you get a certain adoption rate, a certain buy-in that it grows and eventually it becomes standard practice, but it does take time. Right. So you've now been both uh, witnessed this many times as well as very much been a part of it for over 25 years now. So why do you feel now was the perfect time to publish your first book and come out with your own process to only further uh, change and hopefully innovate uh, this industry for well, with 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 the with the optimizer process, and, and I'll say two things: the optimizer process is a mindset um, about being efficient, about being lean, and and it leverages uh, some good digital technology that you know kind of takes the heavy lifting out of it. Now, this book is specifically about turn how we apply the optimizer process to turnarounds, but the principles. Um, you know, the, the, the nine steps in the optimizer process really apply to having a, having a lean, right people, right schedule, right equipment, right alignment with your customer uh, mindset in anything, in any, in any type of work execution. And the reason I wrote it now is it was, I think, really, I saw it being driven by the convergence of a lot of things happening in the in, a, in the industrial market that are um, against our industry. Um, you know, we have a lot of a lot of market forces that are suggesting that um, we're not productive enough or we're not cost effective enough. And in Canada, in the United States, we're seeing lots of um, lots of capital flight where big energy companies are having to decide where they're going to invest dollars. Um, and, uh, you know, particularly in Canada where, you know, since 2014, 2015, we've not really recovered from the, uh, the oil crash that happened um, five years ago. Um, the U United States has recovered, had, had, I should say, we're in the age, we're recording this in the age of COVID-19 right now. 
and we've had another oil crash. So Canada hasn't recovered from the oil crash of 1415. Uh, and we've got, you know, some pretty significant pipeline restraints. So, so all, all resource process facilities in Canada are kind of on the ropes. And we've got to drive our productivity and our cost effectiveness to a new level for us to stay relevant. And so I thought, you know, you know, I had discovered this process um, and we were using it internally for the last few years. And I just wanted to get the word out to see if I could add some value to the conversation around how our entire industry um, can look at optimizing and, and becoming much more productive and leveraging technology to do that. So, you know, that's why, and now I think, you know, now we're recording this in early April, 2020, and the whole world is on its heels and on pause uh, because of the current uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And one of the, one of the early casualties of the pandemic was a decrease in demand um, for oil in uh, from Asia in January and February because that crisis happened there first and that kind of sparked some level of a price war between OPEC and Russia and 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 you know some people would say it's targeting North American oil production to grab market share you know the politics of it doesn't really concern me um, there's nothing I can do to control that or influence that but the impact has been that uh, North American oil, shale oil in the United States and oil sands production in the Canada has just gotten a kicking because the price of oil dropped to in the low 20s. It made a lot of shale and a lot of oil sands oil um, um, uncompetitive and certainly uh, unprofitable. But we have ex we have customers who who have existing facilities that uh, they still need to maintain them. And now is the time to figure out, you know, you know, I think the, the best time to figure out how to be cost effective, how to be creative with productivity is when you're forced to. And, and our entire industry is being forced to optimize right now. So um, I didn't uh, anticipate uh, what was going to happen with oil and COVID when I went to publish this book, I wrote it in, uh, in December, November, December last year, we published it. I think it was, uh, we were working through the publishing process through January and we got it out in February. Um, the timing just happened to be um, to align with, I think, a new need in the industry to, you know, to get new thinking in terms of aligning the owner, the general contractors and specialty contractors um, to, to, to be totally aligned with what we want to accomplish uh, out of a project and all working in the same direction to find the most efficient way to do that. So I think the optimizer process, the turnaround optimizer process is, uh, is a perfect uh, tool that can add to that. You know, it doesn't solve everything for every client, but it does um, add a chapter into how, uh, how all of our industrial clients uh, can can think about being more effective. So uh, you mentioned cost effectiveness a few times in there, which is of course extremely important um, outside of the the current situation. Uh, but what other major or key areas does the turnaround optimizer process uh, 
potentially assist with? Well, you know, the very first part of the process is alignment. Um, you know, when you have an owner organization who has a multi-million dollar um, turnaround to complete, the one thing I always see just from a supplier standpoint is if you go talk to 10 people, 15 people within that organization, they all have their own things that they're focusing on. Uh, and sometimes they're contradictory to each other. Uh, sometimes their priorities are uh, are misaligned. And it's just down to not necessarily not having a system to just say, here are the key outcomes we're all trying to accomplish and get them into alignment. There's, you know, you know, quality and execution and finance and um, and safety can all be aligned to the same objectives without having um, conflicting interests or conflicting measurements. Uh, but oftentimes there is a lot of conflicting communication happening and conflicting priorities. And that from a supplier standpoint, or particularly from a second, second tier um, contractor standpoint, that can lead to, uh, you know, helping some of that organization accomplish their goals and really having no alignment or letting down um, other parts of the organization. So the, the first thing that we try to accomplish in the optimizer process um, is, is getting real tight alignment between all, all the stakeholders so that when we're putting together a project plan, we're actually aligned with everything we're going to do. And that includes all of what I call the, the technical or specification stakeholders who aren't even involved in execution, but you can add a lot of value to project controls and contracts and safety and inspection um, with setting and un understanding their expectations up front and still being able to plan and execute the work. So often the way these things start for specialty contractors and not just mechanical specialty, but I, you know, I've seen it true for um, whether you're an insulation or insulation contractor or an electrical contractor or a scaffolding contractor or a crane operator, you know, organize, a crane supply organization. They, there's always a focus on what I would call the utilizers or the execution team. You know, we're trying to serve the people who are physically using our resources and sometimes that's not in alignment with a whole bunch of other parts of the business. So that alignment, I think, is key. Um, so that's where it starts. I think when you set up with, when you begin with the end in mind with all the stakeholders identified, it, it eliminates a lot of confusion. Um, the, the cost effectiveness side of the, of, of the equation comes down to a whole bunch of things in the process from and it's a step-by-step -step sequence so you can get to a place where you can figure out how to optimize without um, shorting yourself of the right resources. And we go into, you know, we, we align scope and schedule, we align scope with assets, and then we align those, the, the, the scope uh, with the skill sets required to, to complete that so we don't have redundant or the wrong people in the wrong place. But the other part that, the optimizer process really nails is safety and, and, and reporting so that, you know, when you begin with that alignment piece up front and we 
understand what everyone wants out of the project, then it's really clear what our safety performance needs to be. And, and, and much deeper than don't hurt anybody, zero injuries, because we hear a lot of that from everyone. And the problem with that is it's a, it's a result. It's a, it's a, it's the lagging indicator that everyone expects. And that expectation comes with an expectation that everyone knows how to, to deliver on that. And often they don't often it's, uh, simply compliance to a safety program and not really creating a strong set of leading indicators. And so the optimizer process sort of steps back from, from just having a sort of surface level understanding of, of the safety result is we don't want to hurt anybody, which is obvious, but it drills down deeper and really creates heightened awareness about all the behaviors that we want from everyone involved from a safety program standpoint, leading indicators, and make sure that what we're doing it, you know, really fits well with the general contractor's objectives and the, and, the, and the owner's objectives, and making sure that we report on that in a really clear way. Um, that, that, that first step of alignment create something else that I think is really missing or often is missing from turnarounds. And that's collaboration across owner, general contractor and specialty contractor. Uh, that, that creates, um, you know, creating collaboration uh, really helps find wins, helps you capture uh, opportunities that might not be obvious in terms of extra scope or found work or productivity gains or particular critical path objectives that could change the way that the whole turnaround is planned. Um, so safety, alignment, collaboration. And we try to wrap all that up with, you know, with total transparency. So one of the reasons that the turnaround optimizer process can now be so effective is that this entire process is digitized. So whether you are in contracts or project controls or you're in safety or you're in inspection or you are in planning and scheduling and execution, we create the right with that alignment and the digital tools that the optimizer process brings, we create transparency of progress. So every day, every shift, we're able to report on all of our safety behaviors, all of our job progress, um, all of our all of our cost control measurements. And we do it in the cloud digitally automatic. So we don't have to wait for um, a team of people to consolidate reporting. It all just happens with our work face level uh, supervision doing their work and using the digital tools to um, to document what they do. So there's a whole bunch of pieces that I think create a lot of value uh, along the way. Absolutely. No, I mean, uh, just in terms of, you know, digitizing systems, that's something that we see in every industry and hope to see far more of going forward, especially in the industrial and oil and gas space. Because again, in some areas, some people are a little bit uh, behind. So it's, it's very uh, enlightening to see you pushing forward. 
Well, I was at a industry turnaround conference in Calgary in December, and they had a speaker come in talking about digital technology. And, you know, the sentiment in the room is, I'd love to do that, but I'm scared. I don't know how. And, and I think that's, um, that kind of goes hand in hand with, um, with, you know, with the age of, of, of the leadership who are running all of our supplier companies, uh, all of us, um, all of us leaders who are mid forties and up, uh, I'm getting closer to 50 than I am mid 40, but, um, Many, many of those guys, particularly uh, so much of the leadership in, in our industry comes from the tools. So for big chunks of their career, they weren't using a computer uh, in, a, in a work format. Anyway, they might have had one at home, but they weren't, um, they weren't on that path. So if they, be, if they entered into management in the last 10 years, they were probably just using basic tools that their companies had given them for planning, like things like Primavera or, um, and basic office suite tools. Some of them may have had some cost control tools, but what happens in our industry so much is there's a whole bunch of, um, disconnected tools. So the cost reporting tools are probably some of the most robust from a client perspective. They have strong ERP systems, uh, like SAP or, uh, and, and others, um, but their planning system is a separate tool. The way they progress the job is a separate tool. Their safety system is definitely a separate tool and often not even digitized. It's paper and spreadsheets. So when presented with how do you pull all this together and, you know, the, the manager or the vice president of that turnaround group or that construction company, he's not an IT guy. And the IT guys don't have the expertise to bring it together. So there's this lag time. And, you know, what I saw was a lot of people going, I would love to do this. And I don't know where to start. I actually had one vice president of one contractor say to me, this looks like great stuff. Someone after me will have to do it. And, and I, think that that's, I think that's the sentiment is this looks great. I'm not going to do it, but it'll be cool when our industry does. And um, and I think the industrial space, um, in a lot of ways, relative to digital technology, is probably 15 or 20 years behind a lot of other industries who, um, who were forced to grab onto this technology quickly. You know, but we're in a different age now. And, you know, the prediction across most um, trailblazing sort of industry uh, people is that the 2020s are not just going to be a time for digitization. They're going to be a time for leveraging artificial intelligence for analytics and making, helping us make better decisions with tons of data. And so our industry has got to catch up and we got to catch up quick because this next 10 years is going to come fast and furious and if we don't get our businesses digitized, uh, we're, we're going to be left behind on the next revolution in industry, which is how, how every industry in the world is leveraging artificial intelligence. Uh, so we got we to gotta hurry up. And I mean, with that being said as well, I mean, you're not even talking about just, I mean, there are some industries, including 
uh, our own here where uh, it's a new thing just to start invoicing like within a PDF, you know, like, oh, I can sign something on a tablet now. You know, that's great. But there's another step further from that that you're at now and approaching and trying to get for other companies, which is the moment that something is done, whether it's a safety form, whether it's an invoice, whether you're looking at LEMS, whatever it may be, it's immediately beamed off to everyone that needs it. It's not waiting on anyone. It's an immediate process. Yeah. Well, you know, so forget about not knowing how to do it because um, the reality is that if you are a leader in a, you know, in a turnaround organization, whether that's with the owner or with a general contractor, you already know the great things and the insights and the, and the, the ways you want to be able to make decisions there's a there's thousands of who's out there who know how to digitize your business. So you know you don't need to be afraid of I don't know how to digitize. You know if you you know how how we did this was really quite simple. We looked at every paper process we had and looked at which were the pieces of paper that we use every day the most. And it was LEMS. It was managing projects. It was a handful of different safety tools. It was managing individual job tasks. It was understanding our equipment. And we just worked away for a period of time to digitize each one of those things. And, and here's the part that I think people maybe miss, you know, don't connect the dots on is the minute you digitize it, you can make, you can start to kind of glean what I call management actionable insight from the data in ways that are just impossible to do with spreadsheets and with paper and with PDFs. Because look at something as simple as safety. Now, I'm going to write a book on this um, later this summer, or in, it'll, it'll come out in June, and it's called Reaching Zero, and it's the blending of uh, using technology and culture to create a safety, uh, a safety system and a safety culture in your business that delivers zero injuries, not just, uh, not just targeting zero, not just journeying to zero, but actually reaching zero. Um, and, and we were, that was one of the first things we accomplished. We actually accomplished reaching zero with safety before we digitize costing or work progress. And, you know, and a really insightful thing that happened, and it was in talking with a lot of different clients on, on one, simple, one simple part of this process, which is, and, and it's a common uh, safety practice across our entire industry that's really done really well on its own, and that's behavior-based uh, observations or changing the culture in our industry from having, you know, what used to be safety officers walking around enforcing safety to it being peer-based safety where you and I are working together on a job and we're looking after each other. And one of the ways that we look after each other is we create, you know, we eliminate complacency and, and habit by doing a behavior-based observation once a day on our work or on the work of our peers. And almost every general contractor and owner out there has some version of a behavior-based observation today, and they have one or 5,000 people on their job site, 
and every single one of those workers is asked to complete an observation on some frequency, um, likely once a day, uh, maybe some are more or less than that. But on average, I think most people as a best practice will ask every worker to do one safety observation per day and look for uh, what's, what are at-risk conditions, what are at-risk acts, what are safe acts, uh, so that you can really create a culture of working safely. So, you know, that just doing that, I think, has transformed our industry a lot. But one of the challenges is it produces a ton of paper, a ton of paper. If you have a thousand guys on your job site, sorry, a thousand people on your job site, then you're, you're going to, you know, you're looking for a thousand observations. And when I was writing that part of uh, the book, um, I talked to several construction managers and superintendents, and I just asked the question, when you're doing observations, you know, if you have 500 or uh, 1,000 people on your job, how many observations do you get? And they go, well, I don't know. It takes me a week to get that number. Uh, and because I got to wait for all the paper to come in, I've got to wait for someone in some safety administration role to give me the count. And I said, great. So it, it comes back 24 hours later or a week later. And you know what? He says, well, what I'll know is that I have 500 people on the job and I only have 300 observations. So that means you got a 60%, um, a 60% participation rate just in who's doing an observation. What do you do from there? Well, I don't have a way to manage that. It's darn near impossible unless I pay a bunch of indirect costs to, you know, put it all into a report to figure out who are the 200 people who aren't participating. And, and even then that's just one day in time. It doesn't really tell you a trend. You know, if, if you pull that report together and it says that here's the list of 200 people who didn't participate, you, 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 when you start spending time on it, you find out that, well, 40 of those guys were off shift today. And, um, and then another bunch of them just submitted their paperwork a day late. And so you're, you're, you, you keep chasing ghosts. So here's a, here's a really novel, simple thing that creates a ton of value when you have digitized your your work in the optimizer process. All the safety observations are digitized, meaning every, every you know, depending on the tool we're using, uh, we've gone from 24-hour reporting on safety to 12, and now we're just about to launch some artificial intelligence on it that makes it instantaneous. So our all of our workers and foremen can just take a picture of the document and it it goes into the cloud and instantly hits our system and we know what they, that they did an observation. But the other part that makes it powerful is our timesheet system for all of our people is also digitized. So we can instantly every day get an, an, an exact participation rate in something as simple as a behavior-based observation and know that we are 100% compliant or we're at 80% compliant, but not just know the number, but then be able to look at who did and who didn't participate. And then over the course of a few days, we can very quickly hone in on, is there a trend here where there's 
who are the 20% outliers who are just never participating? Because then you can focus your supervision on having the right corrective action conversations, the right coaching conversations, and you can do it before it leads to an injury. That's just a very novel, simple use of having your timesheets and your safety system digitized in a system that is connected so that it talks to each other and you can instantly run the right reports and focus the kinds of coaching conversations um, in a direction that will create a ton of value and keep people safe. And that's, that's a real simple, that's just doing some analytics. But then when you layer in artificial intelligence, you drill beyond um, simply uh, knowing who did and didn't participate, but you can start to see what are the kinds of at-risk behaviors and kinds of at-risk conditions that our people are, are actually observing uh, and, and that we're faced with on this job that might be different from last week or might be different from a different job site. So you can then use some other simple tools to understand what the at-risk behaviors and at-risk conditions are and just using some, really it's, it's, it's a marketing automation tool uh, that leverages the data so that we can send the right kinds of toolbox meetings uh, to all of our people in the right areas of the work that are focused in on what they are reporting. So if one area of the plant is reporting housekeeping issues or uh, some scaffolding issues uh, or PPE, and so not only can we target that to a particular job site, we can actually target it to the individuals who are reporting it and get them having the right kinds of conversations, doing the right kinds of focus audits on the right topics in a dynamic way. And the power that I've found with that is, one, it, it targets the issue. So uh, think about uh, from a diagnosis standpoint, if, if you went to the doctor and you said, I have a headache, and he just gave you aspirin, um, but he didn't bother to look to say that you had, a, you, know, you, 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 you had a head injury, you simply have a headache. What this tool allows us to do is diagnose what's really happening and then prescribe the right kinds of actions for our people to take, right kinds of conversations, right kinds of toolbox meetings, right kinds of inspections, right kinds of focus audits that are compelling. And that, that, that becomes really targeted communications with our people. And, um, and, but the other part that is a little bit novel is, you know, if I'm on the tools, and for three days in a row, I'm reporting some at-risk issues that I don't have the right PPE or there are, there's another trade constantly working uh, at heights above me and we don't have the right um, uh, dropped object uh, prevention systems in place. Then eventually, if I don't see that people are listening and taking action, I'm probably going to just disengage and go, well, they're not paying attention anyway. But when, at least with our company, what everyone understands in, inside of Innovator is that everyone in the company can see what's happening. Um, and so people pay attention because they know that everyone in the organization is acting on it 
and uh, everyone takes it seriously. There's something about a second-year apprentice who knows that I can see what he's doing in safety that somehow changes him to take it more seriously. But what is really compelling is that when he not only knows that, you know, that the leadership of the company is paying attention, but that we're doing something about it, it creates a level of safety engagement that transform the, transforms the culture in the, in the business in a way that we're all in this together and we're all going to look after each other. We all have a responsibility and it comes down to um, two, two parts of our culture that I think feed that really well. One is our number one core value um, is family first. Uh, we, we look after each other. We take care of each other. We take care of our own. And that's from top to bottom. And, and our, our safety system is based on the fact that we care, I care about the health and safety of every one of my people. I don't care so much about the statistics. That, that, that just kind of happens. I care to make sure that my people are safe. And that's number one. And the number two part is that in our business, we value behaviors over results. Um, and from a safety standpoint, so behaviors matter. Behaviors is what we measure. We spend a, a tremendous focus and time on leading indicators of safety behavior. Um, they create results. Uh, we do measure results, but we don't focus all of our time and attention on results because they happen. They're an outcrop of great behaviors. So all of our conversations, all of our reporting, all of our transparency that we give our people across, you know, at all levels of the organization and that we give our clients is really focused in on reporting on behaviors. And when everyone's behaviors are reported and they know that we're, we're coaching and that we, are, we really have genuine intentions to look after them, we all tend to be in this together. And I think that, that that's a, a really powerful part of what we're trying to do with the optimizer process. Of course. Um, so taking a small step back away from just the uh, safety aspect of things and looking at the book as a whole, um, uh -huh. this isn't exactly the most common space for this sort of thing, you know, releasing a book within uh, the industrial space. And I mean, we're recording a, a podcast right now, the, the first of its kind within the industrial space. Um, so uh -huh. how do you think that plays into your own company, Innovator, and the values of innovation that you bring there? Well, you know, one, we, we, we have, we, we value transparency. And so we, we, within our own organization, we like to over communicate so that, you know, everyone in the organization understands what we're trying to accomplish. So um, transparency is key. Um, so, you know, what I, what I find, you know, as the leader of a, of a company, Often there's there's something, and, and Simon Sinek, uh, who's a much better author than I, uh, on a whole other scale. I was just sort of publishing some of my ideas. He's uh, he's a wonderful speaker and and author, but he writes about um, in, in a couple of his books around eaters eat last and and start with why. He talks about something called uh, the circles of leadership. And I think most organizations um, have this, 
you know, depending on the size of your organization, it might be called politics. Um, I don't, you know, sometimes it's intentional. I think in most companies, it's not intentional. It just happens uh, with hierarchies and whatnot. We tend to be a much more entrepreneurial organization. I don't like hierarchies and I don't like filters. Uh, I want all of our people to be on the same page. But inevitably, the things we're doing in the optimizer process are not new. These are things we've been doing in one form or another with one level of consistency and sophistication or uh, not for a while. But I wanted to formalize it in terms of this is how we're going to do things. I, I don't really care how the rest of the world does things, but here's, here's the value we want to create in the marketplace. Um, and so I thought to accomplish two things, one is what a great way to tell our customers exactly how we're going to do work for them, but to write a book about it and publish it in the public domain. And two, uh, writing the book becomes an instruction manual for everyone inside of our business and anyone who wants to join our business, that this is how we're going to do, this is how we're going to work. This is the unique value that Innovator wants to, be, to carve out in the marketplace. Uh, we want to be an optimizer of the way customers do work. So writing the book was a way of, um, um, of stating, our, or stating our intentions in a very public way to drive accountability and, you know, in terms of people inside the company, people who might want to join the company, uh, and customers who may or may not value what we're doing. If customers don't want that level of alignment and that, and they don't want uh, that level of transparency uh, and collaboration and don't value safety and value creation beyond an hourly rate, um, then they're probably not a great fit for us. This, the turnaround optimizer process is for customers who value transparency, who value collaboration to create value beyond a rate sheet um, and who, who culturally value safety above all else. And so writing the book was about attracting the right kinds of customers. It was about attracting the right kinds of people to join our business. And it was about documenting, this is what innovators going to do for all of our people internally. And, you know, from our value of transparency, there's nothing more transparent than, uh, than, uh, than writing a book and publishing it on Amazon to say, here's what we're going to, here's what you get if you hire us. Here's what you get if you work with us. Uh, here's what you get if you come and be part of our team. Um, and, you know, it's in the public domain. It's, uh, it's not a secret document that I slide into a proposal. Um, I, I, I wanted to, um, I wanted to write it down as a, uh, uh, this is who we are and, uh, and it's going to attract the right kinds of people and the right kinds of clients. And it's equally going to repel the wrong kinds of people and the wrong kinds of clients. So it's, so, you know, to me, it, to me, it's a big part of, of stating our values and our culture and our beliefs in a way that will help us become stronger and work with the best clients. So speaking of the right kinds of people, uh, who exactly is this book for? Um, are you thinking that it's, uh, you know, only the facility owners and execution managers who are planning these jobs or can general contractors and sort of anyone in between find value within it? I think it's all those levels, you know, and, and I, and I, you know, in, in almost every organization, 
there's multiple stakeholders. So certainly, um, you know, owner uh, turnaround leadership uh, should read this and should give copies to all of their people if they believe what we believe, that this is a value that our industry needs in terms of doing things in a much safer, leaner, more cost-effective and productive way, because I think that creates value uh, for our industry long term. Um, but execution supervisors, foremen, um, there's many stakeholders that have influence in how the culture of an of a turnaround is, is going to take place. So I think it's important for project controls people, uh, contract uh, personnel, uh, safety stakeholders, inspection stakeholders, at both the owner and the general contractor uh, organizations should read this. Not everything in it is going to apply to their particular area of focus, but there is pieces of the process that apply directly to contracts people, directly to execution people, directly to planners. So when you read it, you might not, you know, get value out of every page in the book, but there will be a chapter or a half a chapter in there that is directly talking about how how the optimizer process applies to you and will make your job better um, and easier. So it's a wide spectrum. And I, you know, inside of our organization, everyone has to read this book because we call this, uh, we call this our front stage. Um, this is uh, everyone in our organization uh, needs to understand their role in delivering the optimizer process to our clients because we have finance people who have a part to play. We have IT people. We have shop personnel who have to prepare equipment a certain way when we're we're bagging and tagging uh, all of our equipment and materials. So uh, within our organization, it's every single individual um, needs to read this because this is our process for how we go into the marketplace. Um, and for all of our potential uh, prospective clients, whether they're with the owner organization or with a general contractor, I think anyone involved in their turnaround should have a read on it and, and then focus in on what are the parts of this process that apply to me. And, you know, it's about an hour and a half read. So I, you know, think just read it cover to cover and then, you know, and, and dog ear and highlight the, the parts of the book that, focus in on, on your area of responsibility. Um, but, you know, deeper than that, um, you know, this book has a context about turnarounds. But, and it has a lot of examples of how it applies to a turnaround. But the reality is that, you know, innovators process is the optimizer process. This is one application of the optimizer process, specifically on turnarounds. But this can be applied to a fabrication project. This can be applied to uh, a maintenance project or a maintenance set of tasks. Um, it can be applied to inspection. Uh, you just take out the references and the context of turnaround, and it's really a, it's a work activity optimizer process that if you take it at that level, it can be applied by our clients to their own work because it's a methodology of taking these nine steps and applying it to the mindset of how you're going to plan and optimize the work you're going to do. 
So, it, you know, the book has a, has a context of turnarounds, but the guiding mindset or principle behind it is it's a new way and a new mindset of alignment and planning and optimizing and reporting and executing according to that plan uh, so that everyone who's involved in that, in that work is fully aligned. So, you know, as you know, from that point of view, um, anytime you're executing any work that is more complicated than one task with one crew, I think the optimizer process can uh, add a lot of value, particularly when it gets a little more complex, when it's multi-day, multi-task, multi-crew with a lot of different stakeholders in anything that our clients do. You can take the principles of the optimizer process and apply it uh, to that work and, and get similar outcomes, get similar cost savings, get similar uh, results for all the stakeholders, get similar safety performance um, and similar efficiencies, productivity, cost effectiveness, um, and, and ultimately uh, zero, reaching zero injuries. So, so I think it, it has a, you know, depending on how you use it, it can be applied to, to both inside and outside of turnarounds. Right. And we'll get a bit more um, in depth with each of the steps involved in a few moments or the earlier steps uh, that is, uh, but give me just a quick rundown of the, of the earlier stages of your process, just the first three steps. Well, the first step is, 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 is really a, uh, is really an overview. You know, what we want to accomplish is identify who all the stakeholders, stakeholders are right up front. Um, the traditional approach, um, or there's two potential traditional approaches for a specialty contractor or uh, to engage with a client on on a project, and, and in this case, a turnaround project. And it happens one of two ways. It either happens where you've got um, some technical sales-focused person from the, the contractor, you know, dropping in to see uh, the general contractor and the owner uh, personnel, trying to figure out who's who, trying to figure out who has the most influence, what the scope of work is, what they all care about, and ultimately trying to put together this jigsaw puzzle of what matters so that I can actually write a winning proposal that's going to be valuable. So that, you know, that would be a strategic uh, approach. Uh, that can take six to nine months um, of a lot of people's time, a lot of the general contractor's time, a lot of the owner's time, a lot of the contractor's time. And, and, and I, I would say that's a, a slightly more sophisticated engagement than what a lot of people do, which is the other type, which is get on the bid list and wait for the supply chain team to define the scope of work that is almost always focused on rates and then you submit your proposal. You try to submit some sort of an executive summary that talks about why we're different or why they're different, and then you find out if you won. And, and both of those areas are either time-consuming or ineffective. Neither one, of them, um, neither one of them guarantee a ton of value creation for the owner and the general contractor in terms of lean operations, cost-effective operations, because they're almost always entirely about who's the cheapest price based on the limited scope of work that's identified with a whole contracting game of 
well, I'm going to try to win what they identified and I'll hopefully make some money uh, elsewhere, be, you know, and, and I just, it, it, it creates an adversarial relationship, I think, between uh, client, contractor, and subcontractor. So that's how it normally works. Well, what we've tried to do here is, is instantly create alignment by uh, publishing the book and providing a video uh, that summarizes what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, we provide a scorecard so anyone can grab the Turnaround Optimizer scorecard and look at the, uh, the eight principles in the process um, and measure themselves on their readiness. Where are they at today uh, and where do they want to be? And ultimately, if they have a gap between where they are today and where they want to be, then we likely can help. And the scorecard actually helps us map out where uh, really identifying um, where are the biggest areas of improvement. Um, and it instantly says, yeah, there's probably a fit here uh, when the client you know, completed the turnaround optimizer scorecard, they had a 60 out of a possible score of 96. And so there's 33 points on the scorecard of areas where we can get better and 33% improvement um, in terms of schedule cost safety are, you know, can be substantial. So, so those are some early stage tools and that, that can all happen before they ever pick up the phone and say, hey, come talk to us. But the next step after they've read the book or watched our videos or, or, or done the scorecard is we book a 90-minute meeting. And the 90-minute meeting is step one, which is, is really a sales engagement. It really isn't part of the project planning and execution process, but it's, it eliminates all of that um, uh, blind RFQ stuff that often doesn't really identify what the real fit, need, and value is. And it also eliminates the need for all of that running around with you know, your sales team trying to get time with the client. Now, that might still happen from a relationship standpoint, but I would rather our team really be on covering value than in trying to figure out who the players are to um, so that we can get down to really being lean with the client and finding an optimized solution. So the first step is a 90 minute meeting where we ask the clients to, who are all of your stakeholders? And we identify who all of those stakeholders are. Um, there tends to be someone who owns the budget, someone who is also uh, what I would call the, the chief of the problem, chief of the project, which is, you know, likely a, a turnaround manager. He might not have the final say on uh, how the money gets spent, but he's, he, he has as much influence as anyone. You've got a, a whole bunch of utilizers. Um, you know, those tend to be area execution managers who are, who have areas of work that they need to perform that they're responsible for. But then you've got a whole array of, um, of specification stakeholders tends to be, you know, someone or multiple people involved in managing the safety of the project, project controls, quality, engineering, inspection, and contracts. So depending on the, um, the, uh, the size and breadth of the turnaround, that group of stakeholders might be six people, might be 12, not often is it more than 16 from my experience. 
Uh, but somewhere in that, you know, six to 12 people are likely all have, a, you know, all have a stake in this turnaround being successful, either from an execution standpoint, a reporting standpoint, safety, quality, engineering uh, cost. So we want to have a 90-minute meeting. And all we do in that 90-minute meeting is meet the players and walk them through the eight steps to the process and how they're going to get value from it. Um, and at that point, they make a decision on whether they would like to go to the next part of the engagement. Uh, that 90-minute meeting can happen early in the process. Um, then step two is really where we start to uncover value and start to create alignment right up front. And so the next step in the process is called the risk conversation, uh, R-I-S-K. Uh, and what we're trying to do there is, again, all the stakeholders in the room, this meeting is, um, is again, designed around having alignment. All the stakeholders um, basically sit in a workshop with us for between two and four hours. So it's like going to a lunch and learn presentation, um, and we're we're trying to accomplish one thing, which is alignment across the entire organization. And I asked them one simple question, and that question is, when we're sitting here three weeks or three months after this project is completed, what has to have happened for you to be happy and satisfied with your progress, with the results of this project? And I want them to write it in their words from their position. And then after they kind of think through that, and it, 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 again, it's, it's the concept of begin with the end in mind. Think about this project is done and then look back over the project and what has to have happened for you to be happy with your progress. And it really helps uh, bubble up to the top what really matters. It also bubbles up to the top if there's any conflicts in alignment or things that one group haven't really realized matter. Safety may have some particular wants and needs that don't quite fit with the way execution wants to do the work. Or there may be cost reporting or engineering requirements or particular types of documentation that are key to the success of the project. And we kind of uncover all that stuff really early on but more importantly, we may not uncover every single detail. We'll uncover all those high-level points, which will create the relationship so that we can sweat those details. Because what I find often is, you know, on these projects, you're handed, you know, a, a specification book, and then you're given an email saying, hey, you better get with safety to find out, you know, how they want their reporting. And you better get with contracts because they've got a different format for the way they want cost reporting. Oh, by the way, our calibration requirements from uh, from inspection are different than what they were last time. And and what happens a lot, especially with um, with subtrades, is you sometimes find out some of these details after you've started the project and you're already in non-compliance. So just you know, figuring out who all those players are, what they care about up front. But then we kind of, we help them uh, dig a little deeper. So after they've had that, uh, what has to have happened for you to be happy with your progress thought process, uh, we can, now let's dig a little deeper. Specifically, 
what kinds of risks do you face that need to be eliminated or mitigated? And so we drill a little deeper and we talk about the risks from the perspective of each of the stakeholders, not, not some full overarching uh, risk profile for the project, but what is the risk per perceptions from that safety leader or that cost control leader or that, you know, that group of execution leaders, because there may be multiple. And then we ask them to select the top three. What are the top three priorities? Then we dive in and we say, well, what needs to be improved based on your experience in doing this in the past? What needs to be, what needs to improve for you to accomplish your objectives that you've just stated? And, you know, each of those people will come with their own history uh, and pain points on, hey, I want to fix the way that we're getting daily uploads and SAP with someone else last year um, took us three months to get proper uh, proper understanding of cost reporting or you know we weren't getting good safety reporting or you know could you just come with uh, five sets of calibration certificates so we can get them all in the right place at the right time there's all sorts of improvements that often are all kind of locked away in people's heads because they did a lessons learned conversation a year ago and it was written down somewhere, but no one enacted it. So it's kind of like taking the last events lessons learned that you may or may not have participated in and pulling it to the forefront for right now before we start. And then the next step is um, looking at your organization. We look at the S in risk and we're, we're looking at the, what strengths what strengths ex exist in your organization today that we need to leverage, we all need to be aware of, we need to capitalize on, we need to capture some opportunities because those strengths exist. There could be um, some very strong um, uh, execution members. There may be people on that team that we could integrate into our crews as part of our optimi optimizing process. Um, there could be some uh, opportunity to capture some additional work uh, if we're able to optimize. So there's a range of potential strengths that we want to capture and think about it like, you know, what are our superpowers and what are some additional wins that if we did those things could really make this project even better than we expect. And after they've gone through that uh, risk improvement and strengths thinking process, I asked them to restate thinking back over the project, what has to have happened for you to be happy with your progress, taking into account the top three risks, the top three improvements, and the top three strengths that we need to leverage or capture. Now we've got nine focus points that help us better define what success looks like. And after we've done that, we go to the final step in the conversation, which is measurable key outcomes and we look for each person to give us uh, up to eight measurable key outcomes uh, whether that is i want to get my cost reporting every day i want to see a hundred percent participation in observations uh, we want to see no issues with uh, lem reporting we don't want to have any non-compliances on certifications there could be a range of measurable things that 
you know, how we're going to measure that this, you know, that if these eight things happen, then your success will have been accomplished. And if you do that for 10 people, you've got potentially 80, uh, 80 key outcomes that you can focus in on that are all specific to different departments. And, and then we, we, after that workshop, we summarize what the risk profile of, the, of, of this turnaround is, what we need to do in our part to um, fix it uh, or to accomplish the goals. Uh, there's likely some things that we can't, that are not really part of our scope that matter, but we've now helped them understand what really matters as well. And they can then take that information, that those focus priorities on, on risk improvements, strengths, and key outcomes, and they may be able to take some of that and go to their internal teams for focus. They may be able to go to some other other contractors and apply the same thinking. And, you know, it's, it's a great way of focusing everyone's attention on what success looks like. And after we've gone through that, we, we summarize uh, our role in, in, uh, in that risk conversation and how we're going to add value. And, um, and then we ask them, do you want to move forward? Right. So it's not all about um, just bringing whoever, you know, of course, everyone wants to optimize their, their process. Everybody likes saving money. Everybody likes increasing safety. It's not about just bringing on just anyone who's looking to, because, of course, everyone is. You're looking for specifically the right fits for this process, for your process. Yeah, 100%. This is not for every owner. This is not for every general contractor. Um, this is for people, as I said, you know, the, the, the alignment for us, um, are, uh, you know, what we just went through, we just talked about in that risk conversation was a very deep and open level of, of, of collaboration where we're all putting our cards on the table and working as a team to define what success in the project looks like. Um, if clients don't want to collaborate like that, probably not a good fit for us because if clients don't want to have the risk conversation, we're not, we're not interested in, in blind, blindly um, taking a whole bunch of engineering packages and coming up with a scope of work optimization plan because we're not trying to optimize the scope of work. We're trying to accomplish the goals that the client works with us to help define. And so we need, you know, the number one thing and that process starts with it is a very high level commitment to collaboration. The second thing we're looking for is, um, is people who have a, you know, the culture um, is a absolute commitment to safety. So if the client site is safety is kind of a compliance thing, or even some of the stakeholders, if you invite stakeholders to the table who don't really buy into uh, that they own safety and that they have a, a, a moral obligation for the care of their people and of our people uh, in, in working with us, then uh, they're probably not the right fit for us. We, we, don't, we, we, we want to work people who have, who have strong alignment on our values. So, you know, clients who collaborate, Clients who value, um, who, who, who have an absolute cultural commitment uh, to safety and clients who value um, transparency so that we can together 
create a an optimized solution that has nothing to do with um, give me 30 guys for X dollars an hour. Because when we optimize the process, we're actually going to do it, uh, we're actually going to find a way to likely do the work with half of the people and about 40% less cost. Not because we're $5 an hour more or less than someone else, but it's the process itself that creates the value. Um, so people who, who, you know, clients who, who place uh, a tremendous uh, value on value creation, uh, on safety and, and on collaboration, those are the kinds of people that fit the optimizer process. And those who don't have those three attributes, we probably don't want to work with them. Of course. Um, so overall then, um, that was a very good summary of the initial steps as well as who exactly you're looking for to uh, take part in this. But um, on, on a higher level, what is the overall goal that you hope to help people accomplish with this book and process? Just to, to summarize. The, the, real, the, the real high level is this. We're going to get alignment. I'm going to dig into the scope and the schedule and the assets and pick the right people to be in every one of the right places. So we have the right people and the right equipment and the right materials in every single place at the right time with the skills for that particular set of tasks. And when we do that, we eliminate almost all standby time. We often reduce the number of personnel needed in the project plan, the, the hands-on personnel by 50%, half of the people, no standby time. And we often, through that, we were reducing overall costs of the entire project by 40%. We're still well positioned because of an integrated crew approach with a lot of cross-training that we're able to be ready and capture all of the following work and there tends to be a lot of following work with specialty services. And that small footprint of, uh, of, of, the, of the best people for that scope of work uh, following our safety system that's integrated into this plan is going to give you zero injuries. So less people, lower cost, zero injuries, no standby time, and being able to capture all the following work in a very lean optimized uh, approach to uh, executing the, the work yeah. and, 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 and total alignment between the owner, the general contractor and our team in terms of being totally clear on what success looks like with measurable outcomes. Right. Um, so that takes care of a pretty good summary of the book as well as initial processes. So, um, and of course, if people want to learn more, they can visit us at innovator.ca and the book is also available on Amazon um, but to begin come to, to our website and the book not only is the book available if you come to our website and just tell us your name the book's free exactly you can get a free download of it uh, anytime um, so to begin to wrap up is there any um, sort of closing remarks anything that I missed that you want that you need people to know about this book and process before we end here you know, we're passionate about this. Um, we, like, this is proven, you know, and, and this is proven by both doing it this way and doing it the other way 
and then challenging customers to think differently. So, you know, for many years and many listeners here may already approach it that, hey, I hired a specialty contractor. I hired any contractor and I said, I, you know, they, I need 20 people. And then you have an expectation that they're going to sweat the details and plan the work. But often you, you as the turnaround leader doesn't even know that y- your people don't even have all the detailed plans to give to a company like us until a week before the job or two weeks before the job. And, and your planning system doesn't have the granular detail that allows us to optimize because all it says is tie point number one and there's a cold cut. It doesn't tell us that it's Chrome and that it's Schedule 160 unless we get the packages. And you need to get that stuff early. So, you know, if people want, if people buy into the value proposition, which is half the people, zero injuries, reaching zero, um, up to 40% cost savings, and still being able to capture um, all of the found work. And they buy into that they are a very collaborative uh, organization. They value transparency, and they have an they have an absolute commitment to safety culture. If that sounds like you, read the book, watch the video, give us a call. We'd love to talk. And if that doesn't sound like you, don't. That's pretty simple. Um, absolutely. Um, well, thank you very much for sitting down and answering my questions on this. I, uh, I hope that we can drive a lot more people uh, to both read the book and get in contact with us. And, you know, uh, one last thought. Um, if you're listening and you would like a copy of the book um, and you don't want to download it because you don't like um, downloading a PDF, uh, reach out to us. We will mail you a copy. We have. Um, we have many uh, hard copies that we printed for any of our clients who would just like to get their hands on it. Um, you can buy it on Amazon. I think it's about eight bucks or something. Uh, I think it's about four bucks for the Kindle version. Uh, if you want to get it right away in this time of COVID-19, you might not want to wait for snail mail. Uh, you can get it on Kindle if you're a Kindle user. Little quick tip that I kind of discovered on my own is if you buy the Kindle version, your uh, your Amazon Echo will actually read it out loud to you. We haven't made an audible audio version of this yet, um, but if you buy a Kindle version of the book, your uh, your Echo will read it out loud. And if you would rather have a physical hard copy, um, just reach out to me or reach out uh, to anyone in the organization, and we will mail you a copy for free. Fantastic. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And there you have it. We truly do hope that you've enjoyed this very special episode of the Industrial Innovators Podcast. Once again, if you'd like to find out any more about the book or get a copy for yourself, please just check the links in the description or visit us at innovator.ca. And please don't forget to leave a rating as well as subscribe so you never miss an episode of the Industrial Innovators Podcast. Thank you once again, and we will see you next time.